This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Organizing and Transforming Justice. And you're not hallucinating. This is in fact a photo of the back of my head. And what you're hearing is my disembodied voice from the great Zoom beyond. Um, And those who know me understand that I hate video. So this is as good as it's going to get for this evening. And you're all just going to have to deal. Um, Now that that's all out of the way, let's get on with it. Um, I'm really honored that this is the inaugural book in the Abolition and pa- Abolition Papers series, edited by Naomi Murakawa. Thank you, Naomi, for your support and for writing a wonderful foreword to the book. This book wouldn't exist without diligent and, fo- and thoughtful editing work by Tamara Knopper. Um, there aren't enough words, really, to convey my gratitude, so I'll just say thank you. Um, I promise everybody that this isn't going to be an Oscars speech and that there will be no crying in baseball, but I do need to thank a few other people. My gratitude to all of my co-authors and collaborators in the book, to all of the people who read a draft of the book during the holidays and offered your generous words about it, to the people I've organized with over all these years, to my teachers and mentors and touchstones, to my friends and comrades, to Monica Trinidad for a beautiful cover art and more, to Tom Callahan and Sensitive Visuals for a great trailer, to Rachel Zafer, who created a wonderful discussion guide, which will be dropped in the link so you can all access it, to Sarah Jane Ree and Erica Christensen, to everyone who contributed funds to make sure that thousands of books will make their way to incarcerated comrades. Thanks also to the team at Haymarket, including Julie, for convincing me to do this project, Rachel, Dana, and others at Haymarket. Thank you also to my friends and co-authors and co-thinkers who agreed to be part of this event. You'll be hearing from them a little bit later. A little bit later, um, and finally, really, none of this would be possible without my family. And I'm particularly thinking of my dad, Musakaba, this evening. God rest his soul. Um, he made so much possible for me and our whole family, and he really inspired me to live a purposeful life. So, thinking of my dad today. Um, So I'm excited also to announce that we have a raffle tonight. I'm really sorely disappointed that there's no theme music following this really exciting announcement, which is probably why most of you actually came today. But there will be a way for you to sign up for the raffle um, and you will be able to win a book, a tote bag and some buttons that were designed by Monica. And Dana is going to be putting the link to the raffle Um, sign up in the chat and you'll be able to sign up until midnight tonight for a chance to win. Whoop, 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 free stuff. 
I had to improvise sound effects there because I knew that there wasn't going to be any accompanying music or theme music, which I'm, again, really disappointed about. Organize a lot of the themes and so forth. And um, throughout the process, I got the opportunity to work closely with Naomi Murakawa. As Miriam said, this is the inaugural book in the abolition um, paper series. And so that was a real treat. And Miriam and Naomi and I, you know, we also have, um, it was a very kind of lively uh, interaction about kind of our vision of editing and so forth. And I think the book is stronger because of uh, collaborating with Naomi in the process. <clears throat> One of the things that I was really interested in was us, you know, Naomi wanted us to kind of think about how can this book be useful for people who've never heard of Miriam? And that's kind of strange for a lot of us to think about that someone might not have ever heard of Miriam before. But, you know, part of it is we want the book to kind of draw a lot of people into the conversation um, about abolition. As we know, it's gaining kind of this national conversation and international conversation um, in terms of. Uh, more and more people becoming interested in it um, and wanting to understand it. And so we put the last piece um, that Miriam actually had written by the time this book went out um, for Colin Kaepernick's Abolition for the People series at the beginning. Um, but I also wanted to keep a lot of the texture about Miriam herself. And so that was the balancing act. How do we kind of draw people in through the ideas, through the kind of different entry points but also for me, you know, um, Miriam is just such a serious thinker and she also just has a way of explaining things. And she's also really funny. I mean, one of the things I appreciate about Ruth Wilson Gilmore's um, blurb was she talked about Miriam's love of laughter and Ruth Wilson Gilmore likes laughing a lot too. And so there was something where I just really appreciate that she saw some of that texture in there. So Miriam had submitted a lot of essays and some of her um uh, some of her interviews, her audio interviews, but I also went through her blog and that was some of the ways that I, that was the original way I met Miriam as a writer was through her blog, <clears throat> Prison Culture. And I went and looked up pieces that I remember reading when they had been published and a lot of them were from her organizing background. Um, and I just want to say close with this. When I was editing the book, I kept thinking about Tony K. Bambera. Um, you know, uh, there's people that are touchstones for Miriam that are integrated in kind of the conversation throughout the book. Um, Miriam talks about Ida B. Wells, Barnett, <clears throat> you know, and we can think of people like Angela Davis and so forth. But I kept thinking about Tony K. Bambara when I was editing and when I had a meeting with Julie Fain from Haymarket, I said, you know, Miriam reminds me a lot of what you read about Tony K. Bambara. Um, Tony K. Bambara was somebody who talked a lot about she does work to save people's lives. And that's such a central part of Miriam's abolitionist organizing. She's very, you know, concerned about how do we save people's lives, right? And how do we really kind of think about what people are going through? Um, and I was also thinking about Tony K. Bambara um, saying that there are no soloists, that, you know, this is group improvisation. And so some of the pieces that I wanted to add to the book were some of the later interviews that Miriam had done in the midst of all this uh, political protest going on, where people are asking her about this increased interest in abolition. And in some of those interviews, um, you know, what I really appreciated was Miriam showed herself as somebody who has a clear sense of kind of um, her place in the work, but she's not proprietary. She really wants so many people to kind of be involved and kind of, you know, um, 
to be open to experimentation. And so these were some of the themes that I really picked up on from just, you know, paying attention to Miriam on social media and getting the chance to be around her a few times, but also in these interviews. And so that was stuff I wanted to amplify. And so, um, yeah, like I said, I kept thinking about Tony K. Mabera and just the way a lot of people, if you read interviews of Tony K. Mabera, people say that she really made you feel like you could be part of a movement, that she really felt made you feel like there was a place for you or that there were tasks that you could do that was a contribution, even if you didn't see yourself as this kind of super politically conscious or, you know, veteran activist, that she made you feel like there was a a purpose, right? And so um, Tony K. Barbera's very famous phrase is, you know, the work is about making revolution irresistible. And I really think that Miriam is part of that, right? That she kind of um, has that ethos. And so I, when I edited the book, I really wanted to kind of um, show those glimmers of Miriam's uh, philosophy and approach and the way that um, she invites people in and as the way I edited the book too. Thank you so much, Tamara. I really appreciate it. Um, and I want to do a little bit of a change since we started late. My friend um, Erica Miners is here and Erica has another event that's scheduled um, to start very soon. So we're going to have Erica go and then I'm going to follow Erica. So um, let's just do that. And um, John, will we be able to have Erica go now? Hi, everyone. Um, I'm just really honored to be here um, with such valued comrades. And I just want to give a special thanks to all who organized and labored to make this event possible. And also the invitation to be in conversation today. And special love to Miriam um, for a project that's drawing us together. Our task was to read a passage, um, to pick a passage from the um, book project. Um, and, and I was really struggling with what to choose. So as I reread um, the project on Sunday night, there's so much richness in it. And I think it's so well curated and organized and this matters, right? So I think that's really um, just it's such a useful project from the curation. Um, and also Monica Trinidad's glorious and shining um, cover. Um, but before reading a tiny passage, um, I think I, there's a few things in the collection I just wanna shout out um, that just really moved me and you know one or two that I hadn't read before. And first, I just wanna shout out the um, letter to the NOCOP Academy organizers. And of course, the, uh, the love letter to the NOCOP Academy organizers. The NOCOP Academy was the multi-year campaign in Chicago that aimed to halt the construction of a $95 million police academy. And it really resonated. And I just wanna um, have deep appreciation for you for writing this. I've been thinking a lot about how we must do better to mark and acknowledge the labors and make our own historical narratives and this imperative of celebrating the immense gains that are hard fought along the way and often quickly erased. So that, you know, that letter has just really um, stood out to me. I also, um, all the interviews that address gender and sexual violence, and how we often end up here in any discussion about abolition. And your interviews throughout this project, particularly the one um, that was talking about vengeance and feelings and grief in the conversation with Ayanna Young. I think we need more of these conversations that remind us of the inseparability of our feminism with abolition. And I really appreciate um, your 
kind of willingness to publicly engage here. Um, so as I was struggling to pick one thing, also I was wanting to read the bits that have flashes of your delight and humor. Um, and sadly, I did not find any references to musical sing-alongs. Um, so uh, <laughs> I couldn't read that, but I know this work um, this way of working can be joyous, and most of the people on this call have an amazing laugh and are super funny. So I wanted to, I was going to try to pick those pieces, but instead of reading that, um, I'm going to read a little section that represents struggles around strategy, because I think we need more open examples of this, and I value collective learning in public. I wasn't born an abolitionist, um, and I'd wager um, most of us weren't. Um, I might have been born with some experiences that pushed me towards this, but I had to learn or unlearn a lot from groups and networks and people, many of the folks on this call. So I'm just going to read a little bit from the interview with the next project where you're talking about a piece that you wrote with Rachel, also on this call today, about civilian accountability police review boards. It's a couple of years old, but I just really value this process of thinking in public and engaging collectively in public um, um, around strategy. So I'm just gonna read just a couple of kind of short paragraphs. Um, so here's Miriam, I'm gonna channel Miriam's voice. Um, we wrote something up and shared it with a bunch of abolitionists and we got a range of responses. On the one hand, we had people saying, this is ridiculous. These bodies are just going to reproduce what we currently have. And what we currently have is no power to oversee the police. By the very nature of policing, it's just not possible. But then there were people who thought that maybe what we need to do is mobilize the community outside of these structures so they don't get fooled into thinking these structures are actually going to be able to do anything. And some people thought that if you had a body that had the ability to hire and fire and control resources, then it's possible that this could be an interim way to begin to erode the power of the police. In that case, it would be part of a long-term evolution on your way to abolition. You're taking the power away from the institution of policing. I'm conflicted. I go back and forth all the time. Is this possible? Aren't the police and policing itself too strong to allow any civilian body to control it? Don't they have unions that are so powerful that they almost always cow civilian leadership? How then would this oversight body survive that? I'm thinking about right now because there's a historical demand from black communities since the Panthers, if not before, to have community control of the police. My question is, can this be possible? Can the community have power over the institution of policing? Is that possible for us? We don't have power over our military. How do we propose to have power over the police or over the whole surveillance apparatus? I don't know. That's why I continue, that's what I continue to think about these days. So it might be a bit mundane to some perhaps, and I know thinking has changed since you spoke that, um, uh, Miriam, but the many very discussions about movement strategy in this project remind me about the importance of grappling with, quest with questions collectively, rigorously. We have so few examples of collectives and people learning in public, thinking in public, collectively questioning and talking through strategies, bringing histories into conversations, staying curious. So I want to thank you for that. So just to end, and I think we're going to go back to Miriam. Um, I want to urge people to read the book, 
to use the book, to form a reading into action groups, to model the thinking and the practice in the project, and to read, argue, and practice joyously together. Um, one of the many things that I've learned from Miriam is that collective political education is always part of the response, no matter what the question. And so get connected also to your local and international organizations that are already building abolition. So thank you um, for the opportunity to be here today. And I'm just having some joy. Thank you so much, Erica. I so appreciate you. Um, Erica and I, uh, Erica is such a thought partner for me and uh, beyond, you know, that being a friend and a co-organizer and is always so incredibly generous. Like we'll answer my emails at 4 a.m. that are panicked and saying, please read this because I don't know what I think and just always willing to share. So I just appreciate you. I love you. And thank you for being here. Thank you, Erica. Okay. Um, I'm really excited that others will be speaking soon right after this. Um, I am just going to do what I was going to do before, which was um, kind of talk a little bit about the book from my perspective. And um, yeah, so I'm really, I'm looking forward to doing that. So let me just move on. So I've been to like book launch events where people read from their books and I'm not going to do that this evening because I don't want to. <laughs> and also, also because I think you'll eventually be able to access an audiobook. Hopefully that audiobook will be read by Idris Alba. If anybody knows Idris, please let him know that this is this is a, like a small dream, so he could definitely read the book. Instead, I thought that I would share 16 guiding axioms for abolitionist organizing that find their expression in this book. So I'm going to, Erica Christensen created this PowerPoint for me because God knows I suck at making slides. Everybody who knows me knows this. Um, the photos in the PowerPoint are by my good friend, Sarah Jane Ree of Love and Struggle Photos, which means really, if you hate any of this, then you can blame them. I think that they'll be fine with taking the blame for anything that goes wrong from here. So John, first slide. These are the 16 guiding axioms for abolitionist organizing that are themes that I see that are basically reflected in the book in multiple ways. So one, the prison industrial complex, PIC, exists to control, contain, and eliminate particular groups, but everyone is impacted. Shout out to Critical Resistance for teaching me about that. Since the late 1970s in the United States, criminalization has been the primary way to deal with social problems produced by racial capitalism. In particular, criminalization orders black life in the US. Third slide, PIC abolition is necessarily anti-racist and anti-oppressive so no to white supremacy, to anti-blackness, to sexism, to ableism, to transphobia, to homophobia, etc. Number four, dismantling capitalism is central to the PIC abolitionist project. 
Shout out to Angela Davis. Number five, PIC abolition is anti-imperialist, internationalist, and global. Number six, PIC abolition must be feminist and feminism must be abolitionist. Shout out to Insight Women and Trans People of Color Against Violence for teaching me that. Number seven, abolitionists are concerned with ending sources of violence. Prisons and policing don't solve violence. In fact, they are the most concentrated violence that exists and are designed to facilitate premature death. Number eight, people can and do change. Shout out to transformative justice practitioners who taught me that. Number nine, PIC abolition seeks to eliminate prisons, policing, and surveillance. It's a dual project of both dismantling and of building. Number 10, the vision of PIC abolition is not our current society minus police, prisons, and surveillance. PIC abolition is a vision of a restructured society and world, a world where we have everything we need, food, shelter, education, health, art, beauty, clean water, and more. Always more. Number 11, PIC abolition is work people already do. Shout out Ruth Wilson Gilmore for teaching me that. Number 12, imagination is a requirement of PIC abolition. We have to invent new worlds and new ways of being with each other. We have to prefigure the world in which we want to live. An idea of prefiguration of living now in the way that you hope the future to be is really critically important in PIC abolition. Number 13, there isn't one alternative to or replacement for prisons. There have to be 1000 different parallel experiments happening in each of our communities. Number 14, we'll figure it out by working to get there is praxis, not evasion. Shout out to Zen Marxist for inspiring this. But there are really clear principles about not looking to the prison system or policing for solutions as part of abolitionist politic. Number 15, PIC abolition is rooted in different political traditions but emerges out of the lived experiences and organizing of incarcerated and criminalized people. And number 16, organizing is the how. Shout out to me for teaching me that. So there you have it. Now you don't have to read the book. I'm just really, oh my God, I'm killing myself today. No, I'm just kidding, just kidding, Haymarket. Definitely read the book, hopefully with others, discuss it, disagree with it, write in the margins, write your own book. At bottom, here's what I want to say. When something cannot be fixed, then the question is, what do we build instead? And abolition is interested in that question. 
and in our responses. My friend Carolyn has been in prison for over 18 years now. And we met um, through a mutual friend who told me that she was looking for a pen pal. We've been writing to each other for nearly 15 years. I tell Carolyn about trivial, ridiculous, and important things. She shares her sorrows, challenges, and her joys. Carolyn rarely writes about prison in her letters or talks about prison in her phone calls. She calls it a tiny, lifeless place. For her, prison life is mostly boring and always violent. She worries most for the young people who arrive daily. She wonders how quickly the light will go out of them. And Carolyn says that her light dimmed on her 45th day in custody. Um, And it took me two years, actually, to ask what happened that day. She answered nothing special. I opened my eyes and knew that it wasn't actually a dream. Carolyn is one of my biggest cheerleaders. She is encouraging always asking me to send her any articles where I'm quoted or anything that I write. And I've sent her a copy of this book already. And I don't know if it will make it through to her because as you all know, who have loved ones inside, prisons are places that thrive in censorship and isolation. So we'll have to see if the book gets in. But when I think of Carolyn, as I do often, In that tiny, lifeless place, I'm overcome with anger, which really just masks my fear. And I don't like to be afraid. So I sometimes trick myself into imagining that prison is not actually hell. It's really difficult to think of your loved ones in that tiny, lifeless place. Despite it all, Carolyn has tried to create community inside. And she admits, though, that she would much rather be free. So Carolyn is fuel for my work. So is my cousin. And so are many other loved ones who are behind bars. My abolitionist politic really takes harm seriously. And it's grounded in the reality that surviving harm and causing it usually advance concurrently. It also knows full and well that survivors of violence deserve better and more than they can access under this current system. I've kind of grown really tired of the um, argument made by non-abolitionists or people that I call, you know, uh, based on Michelle Brown's saying, uh, prison prison and police preservationists, that people who are PAC abolitionists don't actually care about harm or violence or we try to skirt it. Who are they talking to? Most of us are survivors of harm and violence ourselves. We certainly are connected to survivors of harms and harm and violence. I find it ridiculous, to be quite frank. My abolitionist vision demands that we fight for the living. In the words of Baldwin, we must fight for your life as though it were our own, which it is. 
My PhD abolition compels me to organize not by focusing exclusively on what people are supposedly ready for. It insists that we need organizing rooted in radical imagination and in agape love that encourages us to accompany people as they explore what they truly long for and not what they merely think is possible. Abolition is a project of making, of constantly iterating ideas and of dreaming. Dreaming is actually really important. Shout out to Robin Kelly. I dream for Carolyn because she no longer does for herself. So that's really important. Our objective as PAC abolitionists, and I'm not the first to say this, is the abolition of a society that could have prisons, policing, and surveillance. But our work isn't just a movement against cages and cops. It's also a movement to put in place the structures that support the kind of relationality we want. It's the structures that enable and encourage belonging and abundance and care. Yes, all those things. The work of abolition insists that we foreground those behind the walls, that we listen to them, take their ideas seriously, and take leadership from them. But this is important. Those of us outside the walls also have particular experiences and insights that are essential to abolitionist organizing. Our fates are intertwined and our liberation is contingent on theirs. Our relationships must be reciprocal. The work of abolition means that we need racial and gender and economic and environmental and disability justice, that we need true international solidarity, that we need to give land back, that we need reparations, that we have to address surveillance and policing, not just the police, and that we need to end borders, and that we need to abolish prisons and jails and involuntary confinement and commitments that we need to transform the relationships we have with each other so that we can create new forms of safety and justice in our communities. In other words, as Ruth Wilson Gilmore shout out teaches us, abolition necessitates that we change everything. So while reform really requires us to affirm the current system and surrender our imagination to the carceral state, abolition challenges us to use our best thinking but also our creativity to build another world here and now. Rachel Herzing, who you'll hear from soon, often says that eliminating the PIC will expand the context in which we can develop new ways of relating, build protection, and address harm. She's right, of course. Don't tell her that she's right, though. This is important. Just leave it between us. I would add that we can organize towards the elimination of the PIC while we attend to our community's immediate needs for safety. But this is important. Having those needs for safety met shouldn't be the prerequisite for demanding abolition of the PIC. I really think that we know what to do. We just need more people doing it. And we need more people willing to try shit. We'll figure it out by working to get there. Working to end dehumanization, exploitation, and violence which are the key ingredients of the PIC, is profoundly hopeful work. And hope actually is a discipline. We have to practice it every day. So that's really it. That's the heart of the project that I've been dedicated to for years now. And this book is my invitation for you to join us in this joyful, difficult, beautiful, frustrating, hopeful, 
heartbreaking, and ultimately life-giving political and social project. This book is a product of collaboration and collective action. And I'm so happy to be joined by some of my collaborators and friends who have contributed to the book as co-thinkers, co-authors, co-strugglers. You already heard from Erica. I'm, you were gonna, I think we're gonna be having to take a short little break as John reconfigures us, but you'll be hearing from Kelly Hayes, my friend and co-writer, co-author, co-thinker. You'll be hearing then from Tamara Knopper, followed by Shira Hassan, and last but certainly not least, Rachel Herzing. Each person will speak for five to seven minutes. They will introduce themselves because there's too much to say about them. And if I introduce them, we'll be here till tomorrow. And I don't think anybody really wants that. So I hope you'll join me in welcoming them this evening. And um, John, you can let me know. We're gonna take a break. Um, Hi there, um, I'm Kelly Hayes. Um, I'm the co-author of a couple of pieces in the book that I wrote with Miriam. Uh, some of you know my work. Um, I'm the host of a podcast called Movement Memos with Truth Out. And more pertinently, I've been an abolitionist organizer for some years now. I would say about the past decade uh, was sort of my journey into where I am now in my abolitionist politics, which like a lot of people started out with a lot of the apprehensions that you typically hear from people. And uh, one of the reasons that it was important to me to write Jailbreak of the Imagination, which is one of the essays that Miriam and I co-authored that's included in the book, was to try to kind of capture those conversations that we don't always get to have with people who are really intrigued or confused by an idea that might be meaningful to them. Um, on Twitter, I encounter a lot of folks and on Facebook uh, for the first time who have questions, maybe they're kind of interested. And it really drives you up the wall, though, right, to constantly try to explain something kind of complicated and really meaningful to you in like these short responses on Twitter. So I had this idea, like, it would be really great to write an essay that would kind of encapsulate what I might say to someone, you know, if I got 20 minutes in a coffee shop to kind of communicate, oh, this is where I'm coming from. This is where I am with this notion of what prison abolition means and why I am oriented towards it, even though that might seem kind of confusing or hard to swallow sometimes for some folks. And getting to write it with Miriam was incredibly exciting and it's infinitely better than it ever would have been if I tried to do it alone. But I think that we did capture something in that vein of that getting that moment to just break it down for somebody in, you know, in a way that's inviting and in a way that, you know, was aiming to be compassionate with where folks were coming from, but also just unflinchingly real about what prisons are. And that's sort of the challenge um, that that essay is posing in some ways, in my opinion, is to get people to unflinchingly examine what it is that they're sort of tolerating by tolerating the system or accepting it as inevitable. And that's the title, Jailbreak of the Imagination, was important to me because I really do feel that we are all disarmed in so many ways by the state and by these notions of false inevitability that have been enforced upon us. Um, the belief that the prison system always has been obviously isn't true. The idea that it always will be is not true. And that 
if we get people to stop and ask, okay, if that's not true, if it hasn't always been this way, why am I sort of trained to think that it has been? If it doesn't always have to be that way, like, why do I think that? Who benefits from this sense of inevitability? What does it prop up? And what does it do for for me or for people who are actually pursuing justice? Uh, What is the benefit of us conflating satisfaction with justice and not letting justice be something more complicated than that, something that we maybe have to grow? And not that the system actually offers people satisfaction pretty much ever, but it does dangle that in front of people who've been harmed. And the idea, right, that maybe there could be some justice if somebody was punished, it's out there. And so for more for the idea of what the system could do or what people might want it to do to people who really hurt them or upset us is kind of a a justification that is divorced from the reality, of course, of anything that the system does, which is the same is true of of police, obviously. But um, I want to share this a short paragraph uh, from the essay. And my partner's going to close the window while I do it because there's a plane going by. And this essay was, of course, written in 2018. My book didn't come yet because of mail problems. So I'm reading from my phone. Our vision for 2018 is a state of unrestrained imagination. When dealing with oppressive systems, cynicism is a begrudging allegiance extracted from people whose minds could otherwise open new doors make new demands, and conjure visions of what a better world could look like. Questions like, what about the really dangerous people, are not questions a prison abolitionist must answer in order to insist the prison industrial complex must be undone. These are questions we must collectively answer, even as we trouble the very notion of dangerousness. The inability to offer a neatly packaged and easily digestible solution does not preclude offering critique or analysis of the ills of our current system. That paragraph is very important to me because I find that one of the things that people try to to shut down with around, I mean, and it comes from a place of discomfort a lot, I think. They kind of shut down the, this, this uncomfortable idea of what would it be like without prisons by saying, like, you don't have the solution. You don't have the answer. You don't have the other way to do things. So you can't tell me that we have to get rid of this thing that is so foundational and such a big part of my terrain of reality and how crime and punishment model and create the world that wouldn't have prisons in it, right? And this is one of the reasons people should read books like this one rather than just being on Twitter, getting mad about like, what do you mean no prisons? If we had healthcare, if we had our needs met, if everyone had enough, you know, we obviously would not be manufacturing all of this harm, all of this violence even that people want to say belongs in the prison space. And so seeing that there's an audio problem, sorry about that. I hope that gets resolved soon. We need to be able to say no. We need need to be able to say no to this. And the process of saying no isn't a process of, you know, we're going to sit down and we're going to have all the solutions because as Miriam has named in the past, we don't, we can't imagine what it would look like. We don't know what we would even have going for us fully if we all had healthcare or if we all had access to, to safety, to our basic needs being met. So there's going to be a lot we can't envision there, but it's not as confusing to begin as people want to pretend, right? Because we can, in fact, work on generating these changes in the world. We can, in fact, right now be taking steps that are transformative in people's lives and give us glimpses of what a world looks like and what's possible 
when we undo some of these things and when we take care of other human beings. Um, right now, there is um, a jail support effort that goes on in Chicago every day. There are people outside of Cook County Jail. And this sprung out of folks having done jail support around the uh, the rebellions that were happening over the summer. And folks who were participating in that jail support, going to the jail, waiting for people to get out, um, giving them a phone to use, some food, whatever, um, they realized that there were so many more people that desperately needed that support and that were not getting it. And from that sprung a community-based project that was doing something more than just helping activists, that's just helping anyone who walks out those doors and helping them get a little bit of safety, a little bit of help, get them back to their homes. And they've been doing things like giving out, um, you know, fare cards and giving people phones to use. And they're seeing, um, you know, being out there at night that the city is turning people out. Well, the county is turning people out in the street in like a sweatshirt in these sub-zero temperatures that are just absolutely deadly. And so we can see very clearly how this works in the world and sort of what our humanity demands of us in relation to it. And we can model that and we can begin to do that work now. And in so doing, we build relationships, we build connections, we build knowledge that better enables us to fight for a world where that thing does not happen. And you see this through the work that bond funds have done and you in the way that some of that work has escalated towards, you know, ending an ultimate goal of ending pretrial detention. And so what I am interested in, and we were asked to think about a question that we might sort of that we're sort of thinking about around abolition and what it means in the work right now. I'm thinking a lot about mutual aid and how does um, how does abolition and mutual aid, you know, how do we further these goals while we are, you know, working towards a world without prisons, while we are trying to take care of each other in the here and now? Um, Nobody wants to deal with an organizer who doesn't care about their survival, right? Helping people in the here and now matters. So I'm interested in thinking about how do we continue to evolve that in the coming year? And I think we have a lot to learn from the folks who are doing that work outside of Cook County Jail and from other people who have done uh, defense committee work and a lot of things around helping people and building relationships towards survival while also opposing the system. So that's it from me. Thanks. Thank you so much, Kelly. Next is Tamara. So um, thank you, uh, Miriam, and thank you, uh, Kelly and Erica, and also for everybody who um, with Haymarket and everyone who's doing the closed captioning and the ASL, thank you so much. Um, Miriam had asked me years ago to co-author a piece with her uh, that eventually got published in Jacobin, um, and it was... Um, in the wake of the protest regarding Michael Brown's murder and by the police. And so we co-authored a piece and it was titled Itemizing Atrocity. And um, so I'm just gonna read a very brief passage from it. Um, Attention is drawn to the spectacular event rather than to the point of origin or the mundane. Circulated are the spectacles dead black bodies lying in the streets or black teenager ambushed by several police officers in military gear, automatic weapons drawn. Along with these dramatic images, numbers and statistics are the main metric for soliciting empathy and galvanizing people into action. It is the size and power of the gun. It is the number of cops at the scene. It is the tank pointed at protesters. It is the 41 bullet shot at a black immigrant standing in his doorway the eight to 10 times the black teenager was shot, quote, like an animal when walking to see his relatives, 
where the four hours his body lay in the street while family members and neighbors watched and waited helplessly. At least 11 times a black woman was punched by a cop straddling her on the side of a highway. The over two minutes, a 48-year-old black woman, half naked, was kept in the hallway and surrounded by about a dozen cops after being dragged out of her apartment. The number of black people stopped and frisked. The mind-numbing images and the numbers keep coming and shock and awe often greet their arrival. Both the pictures and statistics become the stuff of, at times, hard-fought headlines, reports, social commentaries, and quote, teachable moments. Sadly, their circulation seems to demonstrate, as Frank Rolderson puts it, that, quote, taxonomy can itemize atrocities, but cannot bear witness to suffering. These images and numbers are not trivial or unimportant. Like the Black people killed, injured, humiliated, and haunted, and haunted excuse me, they matter and shouldn't be ignored. The greater number of shots fired, the greater likelihood of being hit. The amount of time spent physically contained by cops increases the possibility of harm. Other Black people have to live with the trauma of having seen and heard these images in real time or virally. The numbers accumulating as they fly and tick away and scream and gasp in the air. Yet we know it only takes one shot from a cop to kill. And as the police killing of Eric Garner shows, it can take no shot at all. The problem is not just the excess. Yet one gets the sense that the only way to generate a modicum of concern or empathy for Black people is to raise the stakes and to emphasize the extraordinary nature of the violations and the suffering. To circulate repeatedly the spectacular in hopes that people consider the everyday. It's a fool's errand because it often doesn't garner the response desired or needed. And it leaves Black people in the position of having to ratchet up the excess to get anyone to care or pay attention. <clears throat> so this was something where, um, you know, uh, sorry, I'm getting a little emotional just <clears throat> from the material. Um, this was something that, um, as we know, there's a lot of kind of debate about whether um, people should show these videos and so forth. And when these videos get circulated of Black people being brutalized or killed by the police and, um, and what work that that does, but also the impact of those images and whether or not they actually move people. And um, this is something that I still struggle with as kind of, you know, I'm a sociology professor and I teach a lot of research methods class and I teach a lot of courses that deal with racism and inequality um, and uh, that challenge kind of the carceral state and so forth. And I'm also a data artist. So I've done work with like Colin Kaepernick's Abolition for the People and these data stories around um, that were part of a series. And one of the things I'm always thinking about is, you know, this kind of emphasis on patterns and numbers and what does it mean that um, this is what moves people a lot of times to say, you know, the numbers of people incarcerated in prison or um, even, you know, some of the debates about, you know, public versus private prisons and where the majority of people being held and so forth. And so this is something I struggle with still is just the way that we often rely on kind of the excess to try to move people. Right. Um, and are we really kind of sometimes um, not dealing with kind of the form and the structure of violence that's operating? And it's also something about just the kind of um, kind of sadness I get around like teachable moments. Right. It's like there's never there's nonstop teachable moments when there's a violent world. Right. And and um, and there's just constant, quote unquote, teachable moments. And what does it mean that people become teachable moments? Right. That their lives being um, taken from them and from their loved ones become these teachable moments. So there's something that 
um, it always, it's very challenging for me, um, uh, just kind of emotionally to kind of see this stuff, but it's also to make sense of it and to kind of narrate it. And when we're helping analyze it for people or to educate people about it, I'm, I still remain challenged by some of the themes that Miriam and I actually wrote about, right? About this kind of emphasis on excess. And sometimes it speaks to a limitation of my own vocabulary when I'm doing educational work. Um, so I, I kind of sit with that tension and trying to keep doing better in my own work around how I uh, think through it. Um, some of the questions I have since then is, you know, I, you know, this was written before kind of Black Lives Matter movement really became what it was and so forth. And in those last so many years, you know, in the last so many years, we're seeing this kind of circulation around um, conversations about anti-Blackness and anti-Blackness has gotten kind of more, you know, it's just been spoken about more, right? Uh, on social media or um, people are writing about it or talking about it. Um, but I, I've been wondering if the repetition of the word and the vocabulary have we really shifted our thinking and our political thinking around the centrality of anti-Blackness? Um, and so one of the things I've seen happen with this essay, and I'm very grateful for everybody who's read this essay and who cites it, but I've noticed that sometimes people don't deal with the centrality of anti-Blackness that's really at the heart of the essay that Miriam and I were writing. We were writing about Black people and about um, Black people suffering, not registering in these ways or um, to a, a lot of people um, and how do you mobilize empathy for black people suffering and what is really kind of, is that really happening? Um, and what I've noticed is people have sometimes used kind of um, the focus on excess and they've made it kind of this colorblind discourse where they said, well, you know, they've talked about various groups and they've said, well, you know, as Napper and Kaba talk about, you know, the thing about excess, but anti-Blackness kind of disappears from the conversation and the specificity about Black people suffering disappears. And so I've been um, a bit concerned about kind of that disappearance. And I've been thinking a lot about the disappearance about, um, I've been thinking a lot about like, what does it mean that as we talk more about anti-Blackness and use that phrase, are we still really dealing with the centrality of anti-Blackness both to the prison industrial complex and to criminalization, right? Um, this is something Miriam emphasizes in an interview with the Intercept um, uh, podcast in, her, in the book. Um, so are we dealing with anti-Blackness as really a structuring kind of uh, racist logic that really encapsulates kind of um, all of us, right, in the process of criminalization? But also, are we dealing with the specificity of Black suffering? And I do worry that that's actually disappearing even as more and more people are using the term anti-blackness. And so that's a tension that I'm kind of thinking through uh, in this political moment. So thank you. Thank you so much, Tamara, for your thought partnership, editing, genius, all stuff. Thank you so much. Um, Shira is up. Hi, thank you so much for inviting me and including me in this event, Mariam. And I have to say, um, your presentation had me sobbing. I had to like fix the makeup and everything. So I just like always, um, I'm so grateful for the length and depth of our friendship. I, um, 
some of you may know from coming to our workshops and from Just Practice, where um, which is a project that we co-founded to help um, help us think through and have safe space to make mistakes and help us to think through the practice of transformative justice and recognize that prison abolition is more than a politic, it's a daily practice. And so doing that work together has been some of the most um, clarifying and important work I think that I've done. But I started in... um, thinking about, and I've been thinking a lot about like the moment when I went from like just hating cops (laughs) and knowing I never wanted to call them to being an abolitionist and to recognizing all of the different ways we're just not calling the cops wasn't the solution anymore. It may not have been the thing that would have worked in that moment. It may have been the thing that would have increased violence in the moment, but it wouldn't have been the thing that that um, not just not calling them isn't enough to completely undo the root causes of what created them in the first place. And I think that um, as I entered into thinking about transformative justice, it was as someone who was a criminalized survivor. I was a survivor of sexual violence. I was a survivor of lots of different kinds of violence. And when I I started leaving home and um, being what some people would call precariously housed or street-based as a young person, sleeping outside, meeting other young people in the sex trade who were trading sex for money for survival, we very quickly had to figure out how to solve problems without the police. And we very quickly had to figure out how to save each other and protect each other. And the components of that are more than just not making the call. It's about thinking through how our relationships can hold us. It's about thinking through how the tools that we already have and what we already do to survive every day are actually the same tools we can use to keep us safe in the long term. I think that the people who are most erased and part of what I try to do every chance I get is to remind us that people in the sex trade, people in the street economy have been practicing not calling the police have been practicing long-term relationship building and community building, have been practicing how we can stay alive, how we can keep each other alive for literally centuries and generations. And I think that we are also most erased from that conversation and we are most thought of as part of the problem when actually we are the solution. And so when Sarah contacted Mariam and I, we have an interview in in the book that I kind of decided not to read from because it's a little tricky to just read an interview. And so I wanted to tell you a little bit about the context of that interview and tell you a little bit more about where that came from. So it was during the height of Me Too. And 
I was getting a lot of emails and we were getting so many calls from reporters who wanted to know if transformative justice could help some of these men not have to lose their livelihoods and go to jail. And we were pretty much freaked out about that because it was a total and complete misunderstanding of transformative justice and how to apply it. But we were we realized very quickly that what people don't understand is the distinction of these four words. They don't understand. I'm sorry if you can hear background noise. I hope that it's not too distracting, but they don't understand the difference between accountability. They don't understand consequences, justice, and punishment. These words have become so conflated. And then the worst part is all four of those words are sandwiched into the concept of healing. Accountability is actually something that's extremely active. Punishment is super passive. So if we are thinking about accountability for during the Me Too moment, Transformative justice would have arguably provided greater accountability through transformation than any carceral system could have. And those distinctions are so critical to how we understand and practice that I really encourage you to think carefully about how those four words function in your thinking. It was maybe two months ago that I had an emergency that came up and I realized um, there was a, it was a huge, scary, threatening emergency. And I realized that in the emergency, um, one of the immediate solutions that came to my mind, even though I have been not calling the cops for pretty much 32 years and figuring out problems in community without the police, I was so scared for someone's life that the very first thing that came to mind is, oh my gosh, is this the moment where I have to call? And I stopped and I asked myself, what is it that I imagine the police can provide? And what I wanted the most was for them to buy me time so that I could protect the survivor carefully and so that I could figure out how to get her to a safe space. And once I realized that all I needed was to buy time, I came up with so many solutions of how to buy time without them because they are the barrier to time. They steal time. They take our lives. They take an unbelievable... Um, privilege in exacting violence in our lives all the time. So what could I do that would buy us time for real, that would buy us time to actually solve the problem? And I realized there was a friend who I could call in the neighborhood who I trusted and that we could go over there. And because I had relationships with everyone involved that I could de-escalate. And so I think the central takeaway from this is that transformative justice is organic because it's dependent on our relationships together. It's dependent on what we can build together. We can contain 
problem solving and solutions through violence. So the question I want to leave you with is, what do we actually think that calling someone would do? And in this case, when we think we're going to call 911, what can we ask ourselves about what we actually want instead? And then figure out how to replace that and reflect on the moment where you feel most healed and ask yourself how you got there. Because I'm assuming that so many of us are survivors on this call and we on this um, talk and we never get there through the system. We never get there through the police. We get there through each other. Thank you so much, Shira. I love you. Um, I am so lucky to be in community with you. And you are, as you know, one of my go-to calls at 3 a.m. when I'm yelling about some BS process that's going awry. So I really, you you know, you've, you've had lots of sleepless nights because of me over all of the years we've known each other. I appreciate you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, Rachel is next. I'm so grateful to be part of this wonderful, wonderful company this evening. And I want to thank Naomi and Tamara and Miriam and Haymarket for this book. This book did arrive in California. Sorry, Chicagoans, but it did make it all the way out to California. And um, I'm really grateful to have it here with me and to have all of these Miriam Kaba gems compiled in one place. So many, many thanks to all of you who made the book possible. Many thanks to Erica and to Kelly and to Tamara and Shira for, for your words tonight and for Haymarket for bringing us all together and letting us be broadcast out into the world. I am extra delighted to follow Shira. Following Shira is a very difficult thing to do. So that doesn't delight me, but I'm so delighted to follow Shira because of um, the clarity with which Shara talks about transformative justice and the clarity with which her um, application of abolitionist politics to um, interrupting violence um, offers us. I think that, that Shara's practice offers us um, really, really good samples to use in the world and her, and her thinking and doing are just such an inspiration and such a good model. So thank you for, the, for being my guiding light in the world, Shira, and right now in front of me. So I have been told by Tamara that um, the piece that Miriam and I have together in this book, which I believe is called Accountability is Not Punishment, um, is the only previously unpublished piece in the book. So if I were Miriam, I would give myself and her like a big woo-woo now, but I'm shyer than Miriam, so I'm not going to um, make my own sound effects. Although it's times like this, you wish you kind of had an air horn at home or something, right? Um, and the piece uh, came the way that lots of things between Mary, me and Miriam come, which is one of us emailed, in this case, Miriam emailed me, outraged about something happening in the world. I was like, you want to do a thing about this in some way? Um, and when I have the opportunity to work with Miriam, unless there's some really big reason why I can't do it, I will always, always say yes. Um, and one of the things that I particularly love about collaborating with Miriam and having Miriam in the world as a practicing prison industrial complex abolitionist 
is that Miriam is a real-time abolitionist um, and always makes us, I think in the best way makes us, put our politics into practice. And we all know that the more we practice, the better we get at stuff and the better we're able to kind of make our ideas real. And I'm always so grateful to get these loving pushes <laughs> or, or outraged pushes. Sometimes they come both ways to put our politics into practice. And this piece was like that. Um, it was ignited by um, people calling themselves abolitionists publicly and in the case of Miriam on social media, and I don't know what goes on there, but Miriam knows very well what goes on there, calling themselves abolitionists and saying, I'm an abolitionist, but, and then some version of R. Kelly should be locked up. And, you know, the outrage that I felt, and I won't speak for Miriam here, but the outrage that I felt was like, don't lead with I'm an abolitionist and then say the very thing that I am seeking to abolish is the appropriate remedy for this person. And there was all kind of, you know, but I'm really upset and this person is so damaging and so harmful to people and should be stopped. And again, why I appreciate following Sherrick, because there are differences between accountability and punishment and consequences and justice. And when we don't take the time to detangle them, we wind up misapplying, you know, our emotion or our immediate reaction to something that maybe even we wouldn't want, you know, next week or a month from now, let alone a lifetime from now. And so um, we did a little bit of emailing and then we had a very um, a long conversation on a bus through sweaty Alabama. That also happened. And then more um, emailing and writing. And I have to say, it was one of my very, very favorite collaborative writing processes, Miriam. So um, I'm going to read a short piece out of it, a very short piece out of it. And then um, and just a couple other things that I'd, I would like to say, and then we'll, I will be done. So um, the conditions in which abolitionist approaches will flourish won't magically appear. They must be fought for and nurtured and defended. For those conditions to exist, we need to put in the steady work of eliminating the use of surveillance, policing, sentencing, and imprisonment. For those conditions to exist, we need to practice operating without using those systems and institutions. For those conditions to exist, we must create them. Acceding as some do to, quote, prison in the meantime, end quote, only prevents them from taking root. Abolition is not about your feelings. It is not about emotional satisfaction. It's about transforming the conditions in which we live, work, and play such that harm at the scale and as prolonged as that perpetuated I'm sorry, per perpetrated by R. Kelly, cannot develop and cannot be sustained. But you can put your feelings to work in fighting for PIC abolition. If you do, you should be warned, however, that there will be no magical day of liberation that we do not make. What or who are these other self-proclaimed abolitionists waiting for? The time is now. Um, that's the set of paragraphs that closes the piece. And 
It is my hobby horse of choice. So you may have heard me talk about that before. But I think, you know, the idea that we um, have to make the conditions, you know, so it's fine for us to say that abolition, uh, prison industrial complex abolition is the work of questioning, you know, what conditions could even accommodate imprisonment or policing, et cetera. Um, but we all we forget the part sometimes that we have to make those conditions. Those conditions do not just happen magically. Um, and and I like the idea that this book is titled We Do This Till We Free Us, because I think that really gets to the heart of the matter. We do this. Organizing is the way, as Miriam mentioned, until we free us. The doing is essential. We can't wait for some angel of abolition to bring prison industrial complex abolition down from on high. Um, this is the struggle, but the, there's beauty in the struggle and the fight at some level is also the point of the Fed. So I'm very, very grateful to have worked on this. And um, the question that I have to ask, I guess, is a question about a level of seriousness. When will people who call themselves prison industrial complex abolitionists take the politics seriously enough to actually fight for them, but not so seriously that we become rigid and purist and can't actually apply them in the real world? So that's the question that I will leave us with. Oh, thank you so much, Rachel. Thank you so, so much. Um, I I know if you were listening to this, you all were either taking a bunch of notes in your mind or in your notebooks or whatever. I was taking notes because these folks are so brilliant. And as long as I've known most of them, I continue to be just fed um, energized, challenged, um, have it, you know, having my thoughts reordered by them. And I'm just so grateful they took the time to be here. All of them are super busy. They all have so much other stuff going on. Some people are sick and not feeling at their best. And yet they showed up today. Um, and I know it was for me. And I know that it was also just for the struggle and the work. And I appreciate both greatly. So thank you. Um, I'm blown away again by hearing so much brilliance. I want to thank Erica, Kelly, Tamara, Shira, and Rachel. Um, you know that I love and appreciate you all. And um, I hope you, most of you did not, not all of you received your copies, but when you received the copies of the book, I hope you hold on tightly to them because this is your payment for tonight. <laughs> I'm glad that that settled <laughs> in case you didn't know. Um, I, um, anyway, I'm hardly doing any book events uh, because we're in a pandemic and also because I really hate people. I do. I don't like people. I don't like to interact with people, but I'm also working full time while also being full time in library school right now. But I'm going to be doing one virtual book chat this Friday, February 26th at my favorite bookstore in D.C., Sankofa Books. And um, I think Dana might put the link to that event in the chat. Please come and hang out. Yes, I'm going to read from the book at that event. I figure if I'm going to do two book events, the second one should actually be conventional in some way. So you'll you'll hear some reading from the book for that. It's a short and it'll be a short talk. Um, next, I'm really excited to share a hot off the press discussion guide for the book that was created by my friend and comrade, 
Rachel Zafer. Um, Rachel, uh, you know, created this and read the book really diligently. And I think the guide is really useful. So if those of you who have any interest in book clubs or book discussions, if this is helpful, I hope you'll use it. That will also be in the chat and Haymarket will also share it on social media. And I really want you to hire Rachel um, and you can go to Rachel Zafer, Z-A-F-E-R.com, Rachel's website. And Rachel makes a bunch of discussion guides for other kinds of books, but also does a lot of communication support and is a really longtime prison industrial complex abolitionist. So understands these issues greatly. Um, hire Rachel. Um, don't forget about the raffle. Don't forget about accessing the link. You only have until midnight, y'all. And if you didn't, midnight Eastern. So the West Coast people, please stop pretending you don't hear when we say Eastern time and then email folks at 3 a.m. and say, but it's midnight here. No, we said Eastern. So fill out the form and do go ahead and, and hope. I hope that some of you win and others of you, I'm not so sure if I want you winning, but I have nothing to do with selecting who's going to win. And I think we have like 90 tote bags a bunch of buttons and books that'll go out to the winners. So if you want to, you know, do it, you should hook up. We're done for the night. Um, and I want to thank everybody again for joining us. I want to thank John for hooking up the tech and the, it was a struggle of mighty proportions. And John was cool as a cucumber and held it together. Really appreciate you. Thank you. Um, I really hope all of you who pick up the book find something useful in it. If you can't get a copy of the book directly, but you know, purchasing it, libraries are wonderful places to access the book. And those of you who, you know, um, are struggling to want your own copy of the book, there are people on Twitter offering to buy folks copies of the book. So Figure that out and get your book from those folks. Um, if you're willing to share posts on social media about the book and your reading of it, the things that moved you or didn't, or things you hated even, um, please post those. I love seeing and reading about it and hearing people's feedback. And I really appreciate all of the support that folks have shown. The excitement you've shown for the book means a great deal to me. Um, and um, yeah. Thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for being part of this uplifting and celebration. It's a collective project. It's collective work. We're going to win together or we're not going to win at all. So thank you so much. Peace to everybody. Oh, I forgot the playlist. Don't forget there's a book playlist. Somebody put that in the chat as well. I cannot leave without the book playlist. This was very important. It took me a long time to pull that shit together. Y'all going to listen to that. You're going to listen to the songs and you're going to like them. Okay, we're really done now. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.